www.talkradio.org. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. We're online at WJFFradio.org. On your smart speaker, on your WJFF app, we are Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. Overnight low down to 45 tonight, sunny tomorrow and 71. Uh, clouds coming in tomorrow night. Chances showers, overnight low down to 49, and showers are likely Friday and Friday night. Stay tuned. Coming up, we have Let's Talk Vets. You don't want to miss it. Hi, my name is John Gordon, longtime volunteer right here at WJFF and the host of a show called Ramble Tamble. It's every Thursday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. And I'm excited to uh, announce that this Thursday evening, October the 15th, we will be kicking off our fall fun drive, our quiet fall fun drive, and asking for your help. Please tune in. We'll be playing a lot of music and just talking a little bit. Thank you so much for your support. All right, it's undercurrent. Well, the program is called Let's Talk Vets, and I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Our mission is to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. Tonight, we are part one of two of the most interesting programs we've ever aired. Larry Winters is a former Marine who served in Vietnam, and like so many other vets of all conflicts, Larry was given good reason to question many things. He eventually found some of the answers and some degree of peace and redemption, helping other vets as a mental health professional, and transforming his thoughts and feelings into prose and two books. We are privileged to hear some of this vet's deepest thoughts and feelings this evening. Now, some of this material may be a bit disturbing, but it is pure and honest, and we hope that you will appreciate the message. Tonight, we'll focus on his early years in military service, and next month, we'll present part two, in which we'll tell you about Larry's work to help other vets, his two books, The Making and Unmaking of a Marine and Brother Keeper, his poetry, and his career as a counselor at Four Winds Hospital in Westchester, New York, where he spent the last decade as director of veterans treatment. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for joining us on Let's Talk Vets and for sharing your feelings and thoughts and your work with our listeners. Well, thank you, Doug. I'm, I appreciate this very much. Um, this is always something I will take advantage of and look forward to because I feel like being able to deal with this uh, the way we're going to talk is always helpful to me. Well, let's start with Larry Winters, the young man, which wasn't too long ago. Uh, Thank you, Doug. Tell us about where you grew up. I uh, grew up in New Paltz, New York, which is where I'm speaking from at the moment. And uh, I was born here, and I spent most of my life here, a short stint of a few years away up in Maine, working on a lobster boat, but the rest of my time right here, in New Paltz, New York. And what was it like in New Paltz, New York at uh, that time? Well, I graduated high school in 1969. So what was going on in New Paltz in 1969 was that the, the New Paltz College was beginning to demonstrate the war just in the very beginning. And I was graduating high school. I remember in my high school class, in my history class, the history professor is up in front of the room with a map. He pulls down a map, and he snaps that map really hard with the pointer that's in his hands. And he says, I bet most of you guys don't know where this is. And he had hit the map on Vietnam, and he was right. I didn't know where it was. And uh, he says, a lot of you are going to wind up going here when you graduate. And that's that's that is what happened to me. But um, you had heard about Vietnam on the news and such, right? I I'd heard about it on the news. I knew about it. It wasn't like I didn't know what was going on. 
but I didn't know where it was in the world. I never went on the map and looked at it. Uh, it was more or less, uh, you know, something I occasionally quote on the news and hadn't really formed any opinion about whether I had any interest in it or not. What made you enlist in the service at that time in the midst of Vietnam and in the U.S. Marine Corps? Well, to be more honest, it's, it had less to do with patriotism than it did to do with needing to get out of my home. Uh, I was going to graduate, and uh, I was enlisted to go to a community college, and uh, my father was going to have to pay for community college, which meant that I would be in constant contact with him. And I decided uh, that was going to be too difficult. So essentially, I had a good friend, two of them. We all wanted to get out of New Paltz. So we said, let's join. And we figured out that the Marine Corps had a program where you could join called the Buddy Plan. And so you could join together and they would guarantee that you'd stay together during the, your tour of duty. And so that inspired us to do it. And we did it. Now, how were your uh, your father and mother's contemporaries' attitudes toward Vietnam at that time? Well, my, my father and mother didn't talk much about the war. Uh, it didn't seem to be something that was affecting their lives. My father was in the military in World War II, although he never went overseas. And uh, my mother didn't seem to have any opinion about it. And I never asked them if I could join. I uh, did it without them knowing. They didn't like the fact that I had joined, although they did nothing to stop me once they found out. Part of what was going on my, in my house was I was having difficult with my dad, who was uh, had worked me like a hired hand for most of my childhood. And uh, I had decided I didn't want to do that anymore and had no idea how I was going to get out of that circumstance. And this came along, and I jumped right in the boat. So where did you go to basic training? I went to Paris Island. The day I signed up was October 3rd. Somewhere in October, probably around October 3rd, I got off the bus in Paris Island to stand on the yellow footprints. And that was the beginning of a whole new experience, right? Completely. I had no idea what I was actually getting into. And so when I got off that bus, I was in a whole different world. So aside from learning the basics of military service, they had to shape your mind as well as to your role in the war, what you could expect, and why you were there. So paint us a picture of your quote-unquote new recruit experience at Paris Island. The, the first thing that I ran into was that we were all standing in line. And uh, we couldn't move. We couldn't talk. We had to stand at attention in line, which was something I never did in my life. The DI was screaming at us. Uh, and they ran us into this Quonset hut. And they said, take everything out of your pockets and stand at attention. And there's this young man that's about 10 feet away from me that collapses. He just faints. He falls on the floor, and he's vomiting. And the DI comes up to him and puts his foot on his chest and, and starts calling him a puke and telling him to get up and clean up the take off his shirt and clean up the mess. And this is the first event that I see as I enter boot camp. I go, oh, my God, what's going to happen? The idea behind all of this is to make sure that you understand you better do what you're being told to do. No matter you know what happens, this is the attitude that's going to come at you. The belief behind it is is that if you don't follow orders, you're not going to live. And they, they talk to us over and over and over about that reality. And I'm sure for a DI that was true. They had probably most of them been in combat. What else did they tell you that uh, you might ex expect in Vietnam about your experience? Well, we heard stories about Vietnam from the drill instructors that had been there. The drill instructor's job was to make sure the men he was training were, would come back home. And he told us that over and over again. 
Now, how they achieved that was to uh, run us through an incredible training program and humiliating us to the point where we were forced to push our own limits. There was a man standing next to me who didn't belong in the Marine Corps because the DI said to him, what color is Napoleon's white horse? And this young man said, I don't know, sir. That was the level of this poor man's intelligence or ability. And uh, that guy wound up not doing the exercises. And so anyone close to him's responsibility was to scare him enough to make him do those exercises. Because each time we get to 99, uh, the DI would say, start over again. Somebody's not doing them. And this guy was the guy not doing them. So I had to reach over to this guy and scare him enough to make him want to do it. And that was some of the psychological stuff that was going on within the training that I I can't forget. We promised that we would share some of your writing, and since we just discussed basic training, your poem, The Hymn, seems to be appropriate. So tell us a bit about this piece and why you wrote it. Well, the way I kind of figured out what was going on with me was afterwards, looking back at it. And uh, I wrote that poem about what I think I was trying to understand during that time in boot camp where my mind was being reshaped, where the enemy was introduced to me, where I was going to have to believe that I, there was somebody out there and I needed to kill them because they wanted to kill me and they wanted to kill my family and my country. And uh, I was in, in the throes of trying to get my mind around that during boot camp. And it was a struggle, um, and it continues to be a struggle. And so this was reflecting on some of those learnings that were being given to me that I was trying to shape myself around so I could do what, I was, what I'd signed up to do, which is to go to war as a Marine. November 20th, 1967, Marine Boot Camp, Paris Island, North Carolina. With 72 Marines on the rifle range, drill instructor Gunny Webb yelled, Platoon, halt! The platoon stood at ease in the shade of live oaks. Gunny paced. Soon, you'll be close to calling yourselves Marines. Then, like me, when you hear the Marine hymn, the hair on your neck will stand. There's no greater honor than giving your life for your country. Girls, that ain't gonna happen if you don't hit the friggin' targets. Attention, forward march. You move like a herd of sheep. The scores will improve or we'll find you some motivation. Gunny suddenly whispered, the tune only a few men heard him and stopped. The men that didn't bumped and tumbled into each other. You marched like girls. Attention, border arms, port arms, right shoulder arms. He spit the command. Gunny made us do the rifle drill so long, I felt my arm muscles snapping over my shoulder bone. Girls, feel the weapon like it's part of your body. Stack on. Walking between ranks, inspecting tripods of weapons, Gunny stood in front of me. Put his mouth to my ear, retrieve your weapon, turd. I reached for my rifle, making the men next to me grab theirs. I saw my safety was off. Gunny's broad brim hat hit his face. I fingered my safety. Gunny roared, Presenters! It scared me so I couldn't respond. Present arms, you damn worm. Gunny's arm shot out like a rattlesnake. Grabbing my rifle by the barrel, he flung it in the dirt. Retrieve your rifle, turd. Sand streamed out the barrel. Give me your weapon, he said, sitting on an ammo box. Snatching it, he laid it across his knees. 
Come here, boy. Pulling back the operating rod, he heard the sand scratching the bolt lock. Pull, you put your thumb in the chamber. I screamed inside. You crazy bastard. Release the bolt, boy. The spring tension of an M14 is 14 pounds. My fingers trembled to releasing the bolt, driving it into my thumbnail. My arms spasmodically jerked, making the bolt's steel teeth dig deeper. I saw the platoon standing at attention. Are you with me, Turk? Pull that damn trigger. I hate you, I'm out. Pull the trigger, damn it. Yes, sir. A scream. Pull the trigger now, or you're going to be putting your private parts in that chamber. I pulled the trigger. The firing pin entered my thumbnail. Pain raced the bones of my arm like I'd stuck my thumb in an electrical outlet. My rifle sat on Gunny's lap. My tears dripped from my cheeks onto his trousers. <clears throat> I tasted blood from my teeth buried in my lower lip. All I could see was Gunny's neck. I knew in, a, in seconds I'd kill him. Not he or the entire platoon could stop me. Stand up, worm. I straightened, lifted the rifle off his lap. The pain forced my eyes closed. Stand at attention, turd. March out there in front of my girls. Show them your filthy rifle. Gunny stood, hands on his hips. Oh, turd. Now you sing my girls the Marine Corps hymn. I was aware that Gunny knew when I'd break better than I did. I reached to support the rifle dripping my blood from the barrel. Let it hang freely, boy. You jeopardize my girls' lives. Staggering in front of the platoon, not looking at their eyes, all of them knew it could have been them. Third, I want to hear the sound of music now. The words stuck from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. We can't hear you, worm. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, we fight our country's battles in the air on land and sea. Going to not jounce the rifle, I sang. Each spike of pain, my voice got louder until I bellowed. Between my breaths, I could hear the platoon singing with me. And the belt, the hair on my neck, stand. Okay, describe your arrival, quote-unquote, in-country. As I was flying in country, I'm flying over land and waiting to get shot because I know we're over war territory at that point. And as we come on the coast and we're just going over the edge of the coast, there on the rock is painted a huge peace sign. That's what welcomed me to Vietnam. Look at that, <laughs> at that peace sign. <laughs> and uh, when I stepped onto the Martian matting, it was 126 degrees in Fubai. Vietnam, just uh, a little, a mile or so out of way, which was the helicopter base where I landed. I took off from a ship that I went over with my squadron, HMH-361, which was a, a helicopter squadron. And we flew off the ship with the planes and landed in Fubai with our whole squadron of uh, aircraft. So... That must have been one of the points that you started to understand, the realities of the war in Vietnam uh, versus what you were led to believe? Uh, it, it, it took a little bit of time, a few mortar attacks, a few talking to people that had been there that were stationed on the same base that had been there for a while and been being hit with mortars. 
and then probably the first re- reality that came home was we lost. I lost somebody on one of our planes who, uh, who was a friend of mine. Um, and he was shot down and never re- never found. He had gone over early, earlier than I did, and because I came with the plane, so I was a month later than he was in Vietnam. Oh, in in terms of understanding the difference between the reality of Vietnam and what you were led to believe, obviously getting shot at and uh, losing friends is one of those seminal events that's going to bring that home real quick. And is there an event that kind of woke you up and said, hey, what's this all about? There is, but I think I need to give you a little more background because where I was going was just basically the reality of what war was about. That's what came home there before. And what, what started to turn that was conversations I was having with other men that were had been there longer than I was and beginning to realize what they had been going through. And uh, we got, at some point, we got called together. There was some racism going on on the base so there was some stuff that was happening between blacks and whites on the base and the and the, the um, uh, sergeant major of the of the highest ranking enlisted man gathered us together on the flight line and lined us all up and he was talking about racism and then he started to begin to talk about he said i can replace any one of you guys in, in a few days, I cannot replace one of these helicopters. These heli- each one of these helicopters is in a million and a half dollars. And so uh, I want, it's not a big deal for me to get rid of you or if, you, if something happens to you. It's a big deal if one of our choppers goes down or we lose one in, in a mortar attack. And he went on and on and on and on. So he went on. He went on to become a motivational speaker. I'm guessing, huh? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, you could hear the groans and the moans and the group of guys that were forced to stand at attention and be reprimanded for. I don't even know what what we did that called for that. But um, that's when it began really to sink in that you know I was just a commodity. I was going to be, you know. I'm cheaper than, much cheaper than an, an aircraft. <laughs> and, um, so how, how long were you actually in country? I, w- I think I was in 13 months, or uh, let's say 12 months, because I took a month to get there. Eventually, I became a helicopter gunner mm. because I, I felt like, all right, you know, I signed up for this. I came into this. Let me see what it's really like. And uh, so I, I spent uh, two or three months as a helicopter gunner, which took me all over the place. And um, I saw from a different angle what the war was about. But in some of your work, you also talk about the killing of innocents. I was uh, working on helicopters at night. Uh, so I was on a night crew. And we were patching bullet holes and fixing things on helicopters. I was in a, a metalsmith. And so at night, I had two, two guys take 10 rolls of masking tape and completely cover my entire body with it. So nothing but my eyes were sticking out. And this was a joke. And I walked down to the tool room like that, looking like a mummy, and asked the guy in the tool room for a tool. And he didn't know what to do. So this was just how we were passing the evening uh, at the hangar. And the, the, the staff sergeant of the shop came in and saw me and basically said, you're going on guard duty. And so I went on guard duty from a perimeter guard for a month. And during that time on perimeter guard, guard there was a corporal who'd come out of the, of the jungle and put him in charge of perimeter guard. And he took us down to shoot our weapons into the ocean. So we had a, it was sort of an exercise. And as we're looking out at the ocean, there is about 20 or 30 sand pans right in front of us, 200 yards away, little baskets and boats. There must've been 60, 70 people floating 200 yards away from us. 
And this guy has us aim our weapons at them and tells us to fire because they're closer than they're supposed to be. And we're on a routine just to use to fire our weapons to get familiar with them. And uh, I said, I'm not, I, I have started yelling. I said, we were, they, these people are doing nothing, man. They got no weapons. They're sitting there right in front of us. And uh, he just continued on. And I fired my weapon into the sand and I watched tracer rounds go out hitting these boats and hitting these people. And this is where it turned for me. This is where it really completely turned. And um, I, I couldn't do any more than I did at the time. I didn't have the, 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 the morality, the soul to be able to stop it any further than not me not doing it. So I always felt, felt like I was carrying that around, watching what we did. So I, about a month later, I was on perimeter guard, and after a monsoon, I found a sea snake on the beach, which is deadly poisonous, and it was barely alive. I picked it up in a plastic bag, and then and, uh, that morning, I walked over to this guy's compound that had made, me, made us do this, and I put it in his... I put it in his under his poncho on his rack and there next to the rack is a whole string of human ears uh, and that that was as much of a retaliation as I could do in the current mindset I was in at that point but that was the turning point well I think we should hear another piece that you wrote which kind of touches on this. Your heaven is just a game. And uh, tell us about when and why you wrote this piece. Well, it has mostly to do with the fact that, you know, I was raised as uh, I went to Cub Scouts. I went to Boy Scouts. I went to school. I went to church, uh, Methodist Church. I was dropped off for Sunday school every Sunday. And I had been... Uh, told over and over and from every educational angle there is that thou shall not kill and um, that had been planted in there pretty deep and um, you fly over uh, an area where we have been bombing and there's thousands and thousands of craters from the bombs and the shells that we had delivered to Vietnam and uh uh, when McNamara started to have to prove to the American people we were winning the war. And so he came up with body count. And so everybody's painting on conical hats on the side of their helicopters, whatever, if they killed something, whether it was a chicken, a water buffalo, or, or a kid riding on a bicycle. And then we just started to accumulate death and... Um, at some point during that time when I was flying, uh, this is when I, I began to wake up. This is, this is some kind of game that's going down that has a lot less to do with, you know, helping innocent people than it has to do with making money. And that's when the beginnings of that idea of heaven is just a game because I'd been religious enough and educated enough that, you know, God was supposed to be somewhere on that battlefield, but I couldn't locate him. For 18 years, I kneeled by my bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Should I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Went to Sunday school, said the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, followed the golden rule, showed up for Boy Scouts, was told over and over, Thou shall not kill, thou shall not kill. Prayed, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. At 18 in boot camp, learned how to forget where I came, how to shoot and laugh, how to kill without blame. For 18 years I'd raised my hand to my heart, and Boy Scouts my three fingers to my brow, with Moses' words still in my head, 
I prayed to God to quiet my fears. Then Uncle Sam sent me to use my skills. So I did what he said. I shot my gun to kill. Then I realized someone was dead. Since I've come home from war, I couldn't get the battle out of my head. I'd been half a man if I didn't slay. I tried to walk away from death, but found I'm half a man anyway. When I came home, you wouldn't look at me, but pinned hero ribbons on my chest. Now I roam this land a man in a race, trying to find my own burying place. Because of war, I'll never kneel again. I'll never go through your church doors. The golden rule is for the fool. I hollered your name, no one came. Thy kingdom has come, my will was done. On earth there is war, and your heaven is just a game. Upon your return to the world, how did you feel about the attitude of the general public and the media that portrayed you and your comrades as criminals under the very umbrella of freedom and liberty you were called upon to protect and preserve? Well, it's it's complicated, I think, Doug, because, you know, I, I, I never entered one camp fully, whether being a you know, a protester who was in the war or whether being a Marine who was doing his job. Uh, so I was stuck between those two worlds. And so I came home stuck between those two worlds. So, of course, the love and peace and the hippies and the, 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 the New Paltz, all the women, college women walking around with no bras. Uh, you know, I wanted to be part of that game. But at the same time, I was very much part of what I had just lived through and gone through and um, knew a language that they didn't have a clue about. Uh, when I went back to college, the kids were throwing spitballs as I was a freshman in Ulster Community College. And I, I just couldn't believe, you know, where, how all of this took place. You know, I have in that a poem confessions if you've listened to it, it it really sort of gets you know i was i was proud to be a marine and i was ashamed that i was in the marine corps that these this dichotomy that was taking place in my psyche and my soul was continually uh, creating stress in my life so what was your transition or the beginning of your transition to civilian life like what did you experience well i came home and uh, I got married just before I got out of the Marines. So I came home with, to my wife, and we rented a house. And um, within two or three months, I had invited two Marine friends, close friends that I had, who had also gotten out, to come live with me. So there I am with my young wife, newly married, and I got two Marines living in a house with me. <laughs> Which, when I look at, back at it, it was, a, you know, it, was a, it had to be shocking for her. If one, I was a very different person than the one she thought she married after going through that experience. We really hadn't, hadn't had much time together since I'd come back. And here are two other Marines, and we're trying to figure out together how to step into real life, step into the world, we would call it. Step into the world, yep. So what did you do to begin to cope with your personal feelings and attitudes and some of the attitudes of your friends and family? Well, I think there was a good deal of smoking pot in the beginning to, just to try to kind of numb out. And uh, then I went back to school and started school, and that, that, and that didn't, didn't really work either. 
So I started to work. I bought a I bought a company, a taxi company, a small taxi company that in town. I went half in on it with somebody uh, who was also it was a World War Two guy and a, a guy that you know an older man that that sort of wanted to mentor me. And I worked a hundred hours a week for about four or five years, uh, running a taxi where I had a whole group of men that were the age of my father and grandfather working for me. And I, you know, I worked and working long, long hours. And then eventually, uh, my wife and I had a child. And I suspect that, um, some of the hours you worked in the taxi overnight being, uh, lonely hours prompted your thought process or amplified your thought process and the things you were dealing with to a great extent. Yeah. Yeah, although I think what I was trying to do is keep the prayer wheel spinning so I didn't have to sit still and feel what I was really feeling. So I kept, you know, I kept engaged So because when I wasn't working 100 hours a week, I came home and I was rebuilding the house, uh, you know, which I was, I was somewhat of a skilled carpenter at that point. And uh, so I kept myself fully engaged physically which seemed to be, you know, that's sort of how I grew up working to, to cope. And that's what my father did. And I think I took, took the mantle and just continued to work. And probably you could see that in my life today still. So. Well, you have written um, a couple of books, one of which I'm reading, and quite a few poems over the years. What was it prompted you to start writing? Because writing is cathartic, right? Well, I think when I was in college, when I went back, and the guy that they were throwing spitballs at in freshman English, uh, somehow f there were two veterans in his class, and the rest were graduates from high school. And uh, he sort of moved in our direction enough that he encouraged, he says, uh, Write poems, and if the if the lines go horizontal, write the opposite direction. And uh, I began writing poems, and I had written a few in Vietnam, and when I was in the service, when I was on endless amounts of, of duty. Um, and he uh, was pretty positive about what I was doing, and that, and it started me trying to sort things out and put some of the emotions that I had stirring inside into words and uh when i got a little bit acknowledged that helped it go along and that eventually took root and uh, over the years i just continued with it and so uh it must have been 20 years from that point that i finally decided maybe i need to tell this story and i sit down and i spent i don't know five years writing the first book, The Making and Unmaking of a Marine, One Man's Struggle for Forgiveness. And then that then took solid root as a way for me to be able to feel like I've got a way to sort out the confusion and uh, I get a chance to interact with myself when I write. So I get to, when you read what you've written, then you can look at it. And sometimes a few days later, you see it from a different perspective and you can get new insights about what might be going on. And that became a very invaluable tool for me to be able to move further and become a therapist eventually. Well, let's hear another one of your very powerful pieces called The Confession. Take us into that, Larry. Oh, I mentioned it earlier in that, but that poem... Um, really shows the uh, the bipolar mindset that, uh, that many Vietnam veterans had to go through, and I think veterans of today have to go through, where you've committed your life to a project, to, a, to an ideal, and at some point you realize that commitment perhaps wasn't made to people who were in good faith, the politicians and the the leadership that decides that what you're going to do with your life. And so you, you live in that chasm between those two ideas. It's, it's a, it's an interest space that is difficult. Confession. I'm ashamed that I may not have killed anyone in Vietnam. I'm ashamed that I may have killed someone. 
I'm proud that I was a Marine. I'm embarrassed to tell anyone that I was in the Marines. I grew up in believing in God and country. In Vietnam, I lost my belief in God and distrust anything my country tells me. Vietnam was the most beautiful country I ever saw. Vibrant colors, skies piled with cumulus clouds, beautiful women with silk black hair. Vietnam was an ugly, blood-drenched, sweating inferno where women and children were at times weapons themselves. Vietnam made heroes out of schoolboys. Vietnam made traitors out of scared boys who hated what they were told to do, but did it anyway. I wanted my father to be proud of me for standing up and fighting for my country. My father never asked me anything about the war. When I returned, I missed my girlfriend and married her as soon as I got home. I divorced my wife and for years could not father our child. So I'm sure there are those listening who are familiar with the same pain, disillusionment, and who have faced the same moral dilemma as you have. As we've discussed, wars may change, but uh, certain issues faced by the American servicemen and women remain the same regardless of what you call them. At some point, as you wrestled with your own demons, you decided to use your experience to help other vets, and we both felt that a thorough discussion was in order, so I'd like to invite you back for a future edition of Let's Talk Vets. Give us a tease about some of the topics we'll talk about next time, and that would be the topics about your professional life and your continuing to write uh, poems and books and some of the things you're involved with to help other vets afflicted with uh, the issues that uh, you faced. Okay. Well, what happened was is that I eventually uh, went back to Vietnam in 1994 to study post-traumatic stress in the Vietnamese people because at that point I'd become a therapist. And so when I went back to Vietnam and I asked forgiveness from the Vietnamese people, that allowed me to begin to make further steps when I came home. And those further steps had to do with becoming the head of veterans treatment at Four Winds Hospital for the uh, probably for 10 years. And during that time, I had the opportunity to work with many, many people that were struggling with PTSD, struggling with suicidality uh, as, a relation, as it related to war and trauma. Uh, and the Holocaust and many, I began to understand that helping these folks was in, in addition was helping myself. I had learned something in Vietnam, which took a long time to pound on the anvil and come out with something that was actually constructive. And that was is that I had spent a lot of time with death in Vietnam. I didn't expect to come home. And I became so familiar with death that I could stand in a room of people who were all suicidal and not be frightened about talking about it, about asking them to look at it, about comforting them to, and trying to deal with it. And that was a, a gift that eventually evolved out of all of this that helped me a great deal to be an effective therapist. I was going to, I was going to ask you that very question, having to go through the hell that you and others endured in Vietnam, you probably could not have been as effective as you were helping others had you not gone through that. I think that's true. I think that's true. You know, having my own experience that I had to negotiate, all of us have to negotiate these experiences alone. Um, in reality, we go to sleep alone we wake up alone we have people and friends and support but in the end how you learn to care for yourself again how you learn to stop being judgmental stop being self-abusive there's a whole collection of things that have to do with relearning how to care for self and that's uh, that's part of it well larry I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. And stories like this, as we said before, do help others. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? There's one one topic that became a focus of mine after I had been, been really working with a lot of that. Uh, it had to do with something I discovered reading. As the topic was moral injury. 
and I had never thought of my morality being injured. But as soon as I saw that word, it registered at some level that that is what drives many, many of destructive forces that veterans have towards themselves and others. Their morality was injured like mine. I went to Sunday school. I was educated. And then the 13 weeks of boot camp didn't extract all of that stuff. I still had to live with it after having gone to war and been very responsible for taking lots of lives. I had to still come back and deal with that alone. Um, and so moral injury is just a, a topic that I feel like has just begun to enter the world of psychology and psych psychotherapy. And th this has to do with all moral injury, not just that that takes place in war. That would be what I would uh, continue to focus on as uh, where I am today. Is there one piece of advice that you would, or suggestion that you would give to other vets who would be listening or caregivers that are listening that are dealing with the same types of issues? There, there is help. And for me, it took me, it took a while for me to feel like I could find someone that would be helpful. And what basically it wasn't a modality or a particular uh, craft that they had or a therapy that they developed. It had mostly to do with kindness and listening and finding someone, whether it's a healthcare professional or a friend, but finding someone that you begin to, can begin to trust to talk to and that will listen is probably that as well as the family members and spouses and girlfriends and boyfriends, those uh, people are going to be the ones that help you return to caring for yourself. If they care for you, you will have some help in caring for yourself because sometimes when we go to war, we feel like no one would want to love again someone who's done what I've done. But there's many people that are capable and willing to love because you're not just the person that took life. You're a human being that deserves life. Every community in America could have a billboard as you enter the community that lists those soldiers killed in combat and a list of those soldiers and vets who have taken their own lives. This is the true cost of the bounty we all enjoy in the land of the free. Vietnam vets who have committed suicide are now far beyond the 58,000 killed in the war. Today's soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan wars that committed suicide is five times the number killed in combat. Is the media making enough of the suicides occurring in the military and in the veteran population? And is the public able to tolerate listening? I refuse to believe folks don't care that their loved ones friends and community members are choosing death over living. No one institution seems to know why the numbers are so high, but it is all too obvious that some of what is going on is the after-effects of war, as well as soldiers' fears of a second or third deployment. It may be facing a war that started when many of today's recruits were eight or nine years old. Some soldiers may feel shame or fear for not wanting to go to war that a country supports, so instead they kill themselves. I really don't know, and I don't think anyone else does either. Do soldiers and vets who take their own lives belong on the same honor roll that the dead combat soldiers are on? I say yes. If we acknowledge the moral and psychological ramifications created by war on soldiers, 
the military and government must stop trying to explain these human sacrifices with confusing statistics. In the minds of suicide victims, there are a panoply of reasons, from guilt, rage, betrayal, love for those who they feel do not deserve living with their torment. For some, they may need a moral payback for lines that they feel they may have crossed. These men and women do not deserve judgment from the society that they once protected. Larry Winters, ex-Marine, licensed mental health counselor. It really does come down to the simple things that we're all taught, doesn't it? Thank you, Larry. Take care. We'll be in touch. Thank you, Doug, for doing this, by the way. And I think in your own way, I think that being able to do this is helping you as well. Yes, it is. Well, you have been listening to Let's Talk Vets on WJFF Radio Catskill in Jeffersonville. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. I told you this would be interesting. We covered a lot of ground in general and a lot of ground that combat veterans would rather not discuss. The reasons are often left unsaid. When reasons are given, they often share a common truth that Really, how can I discuss this with you when we share no common ground, no common experience, and you're not going to understand it anyway? Well, currently we're losing about 22 veterans a day to suicide. While the government and others are looking for a magic bullet to solve the situation, there is no universal solution because there is no universal cause. We discussed some of the contributing factors on this show. We've interviewed vets with horrific physical injuries those with the invisible psychological scars of war, like Larry, blind vets who could and should still be allowed to serve, those who are victims of racial prejudice, intolerance for those of the LGBT community, and those who have been sexually harassed or assaulted. As Larry said, in the end, we're all human beings. We need to walk a mile in each other's shoes before we can even begin to understand and help turn the horrific tide of self-inflicted death. Each person processes traumatic events differently. We all come face to face with our demons when we're alone. And what it really starts with is not a discussion at all, but a willing ear and the ability to just listen. So check in on a vet, even if just by phone. Thank a vet for their service. Go shopping for a vet. Teach children that they live in the land of the free, because there were some brave enough to risk the unknown and life and limb, and in some cases made the ultimate sacrifice. War is, after all, the result of failed geopolitical diplomacy, and it is the politicians who run up the bill and the grunts who are left to pay the tab. Our sincere thanks tonight to Larry Winters, veteran, survivor, author, poet, raconteur, and mental health professional. And to you for joining us once again. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. If you got a story to tell, we'd love to talk to you. and We'd love to have you join us on Let's Talk Vets. Send us an email or leave us a voicemail, and I'll be in touch to set up a phone interview. Also send us your upcoming events so we may air them on both WJFF Public Affairs segments and this program. You can send me an email at vets at wjffradio.org. You can leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. Until our next formation, this is Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. We're going to leave you tonight with a very special love song, lyrics by, you guessed it, Larry Winters, and performance and music by Grace Buford. It's called A Casualty of War. Good night.
Next time on the Waggle the Monkeys will be Graham Rice here on Radio Catskill. More British and Irish folk music, including songs about English towns. Join me, please, on Sunday afternoon at three, followed by Folk Plus. I'm Peter Sagal, and I love to sustain. I like to sustain notes when I play the piano. Say a nice middle E held for about 10 minutes. I like to sustain grudges. I've been mad at Jonathan Chandros for 45 years, and I don't even remember why. Mainly, though, I like to sustain my NPR 